Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 30th, 2023. On Keenon, we like to address big subjects, big questions, like what distinguishes us from other species. A couple of weeks ago, we had an Oxford academic on the show, John Parrington, um, who uh, has a new book out called Consciousness. Uh, he's also the author of Mind Shift, um, which suggests that what distinguishes us from uh, the animals is our brains and the cultural way in which our brains have evolved. Um, it was an interesting argument and an interesting theme. And we have a similar kind of eclectic, multidisciplinary academic on the show today. Michael uh, Muthu Krishna isn't at Oxford. He's at the LSE. He is a professor of something called economic psychology. And he has a similarly ambitious book uh, from Parrington. His book, is a theory of everyone, not a theory of everything, a theory of everyone, the new science of who we are, how we got here and where we're going. And like Parrington, one of his themes is what distinguishes us from other species. Uh, Michael is joining us from Michigan today, normally lives uh, just outside Northeast London. Uh, Michael, so perhaps we might begin there. Is it, do we begin with the brain or do we bring to begin socially? Well, I mean, uh, one of the things when you have a kind of overarching theoretical framework, as I argue we now have in the human and social sciences, is that these things are, are a package. They kind of co-evolve. So, you know, some people like to say it's the, it's the large human brain uh, or it's language. Uh, you know, it's one of these things that really makes us so different. But actually, they are both part of the explanation, but they're also part of the puzzle. So take take the big human brain, for example. Like you might think that having a bigger brain is uh, is a good thing. But if you think that, then you should wonder why more animals don't have large brains. And one of the major reasons for that is that brain tissue is incredibly energetically expensive. It's about a 20 times as energy expensive as muscle tissue. And so uh, you can it's only worth having a big brain if you can pay its bills, its energy bills, its calorie costs. And that's, you know, what an animal wants is the smallest possible brain that allows it to, you know, uh, outcompete other members of the group, uh, evade predators, find food, and so on, rather than a big brain. And the same with language, you know, as an explanation, um, there's no point in having language if, you know, if, if there's a mutation that suddenly gives you some language abilities, there's really no point in having that if you're in a group where no one else does. It just sounds like you're making strange sounds because they don't understand language. So you have a startup problem for language. So um, the starting point for how it is that the human brain expanded as much as it did uh, and why we have capacities like reason and language is, is in neither of those things. It, it kind of predates that. Uh, should I keep going, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm, you, you, you make me uh, intrigued. You're getting me, you're sucking me in, Michael. Um, good, as good. I said, you're... you're your primary goal as an academic is, is what makes humans so different from animals. So you've suggested that it's not our brain size. So continue. You've explained what it isn't. So what exactly is it? So it is it is culture, actually, uh, and it is our brains. But that's not kind of the starting point for, for humans. So humans are a new kind of animal. And what I claim in the book is that uh, we are a new kind of animal that relies on 
uh, unculturally transmitted information that is independently evolving, right? So uh, most animals, when they encounter a new environment, uh, are forced to genetically adapt to that environment. So if you move to the Arctic, you need more fat and fur, for example, in order to deal with those temperatures. You need uh, proteins in your body to deal with local plants. And uh, the other way that we, you know, all animals learn is through individual trial and error learning. So, you know, you don't go there. That's where the foxes are. They're going to eat you. You should go over there. That's where the food and the water is. And you figure that out through trial and error learning. But humans have those two things. Uh, but when we marched across the globe as hunter-gatherers long before science or any of those things, uh, we we didn't we did change a little bit uh, genetically. So, for example, you know, human skin color is well adapted to to latitude to UV radiation, balancing the need to synthesize vitamin D in your skin, get enough sunlight. Um, so if you're in a northern latitude, you lose your melanin in order to do that, but you also want some melanin to protect you from skin cancer. So we had some genetic changes, but most of what we did, we didn't develop proteins that allowed us to process the local plants. We developed cooking techniques that could detoxify food before we ate it. Uh, we didn't get more fat and fur per se for the Arctic. Um, we learned how to hunt prey and even predators and then wore their skins as clothing to keep us warm. And that's kind of unique. So the puzzle is, A, how did we end up as a different kind of animal reliant on this cultural information? And how is culture evolving over time uh, such that we have this toolkit that enables us to survive everywhere on the planet in ecological zones from the Arctic uh, to tundras to deserts that our African ancestors were not well equipped uh, genetically to survive in? So step back, back a little bit because you're you're obviously an, an evolutionary theorist. Are you suggesting that everything about us as a species can be explained in those terms? Uh, depends what you mean by everything about well, us. I, I mean, when we look at the headlines today, you, you've got an optimistic take, Michael, but I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the headlines today. They're miserable. They're all about wars, hatred. Um, yeah. There's a piece in the New York Times about peace, uh, uh, Hamas stealing uh, the empathy of, of its victims. There's a piece about uh, a pogrom in, in Dagestan. There's a huge amount of stuff about the Israeli invasion of Gaza and their mistreatment of, uh, of civilians. There doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of your optimism out there today, Michael. Well, I mean, I mean, first off, you know, these are truly horrible events that we're dealing with. And and I mean, the book is is written, some people call it an optimistic book, and it's optimistic in the sense that I think we have tools for tackling some of those problems. But it's also pessimistic in the, in the sense that I think that uh, the kinds of conflicts that you're seeing, so we for a long time, violence has declined, the world got better, uh, by every metric that we might care about, uh, you know, child survival rates, uh, lifespans, health, everything seems to be getting better. But what I argue is that we are in a moment where things are starting to get a little worse. We're at the early stages of that where we can using these tools. So I do, you know, you, you asked me a specific question. Do I think that uh, the lens with which I just suggested can explain all this? And I would say, yes, it can. In the same sense that uh, evolutionary biology can explain everything that's going on in the biological world, in ecologies, but only at a certain level, right? Like at, at the end of the day, it gives you a framework for thinking about how predator prey systems work and energy pathways and carbon pathways. But then you got to get into the details. Now, if you don't have that framework, you're running blind and it's, it looks like a chaotic and confusing world to you. 
But with that framework, you can at least start to say, well, what are the levers here? How can we understand why some groups are in conflict with each other under some conditions and at other times are not? So one of the things I work on is, is this puzzle of large-scale cooperation, how it is that we became more cooperative. All right. So I'm not sure we, where to... Go ahead, Andrew. Um, we are talking with Michael Muthukrishna, the author of A Theory of Everyone, The New Science of Who We Are, How We Got Here and Where We're Going. These tend to kind of books, Michael, I don't need to tell you, uh, tend to be rather abstract and high level. Let's be a bit more practical and let's address this, all the divisions uh, that seem to have erupted yeah. uh, over the last three weeks in October 2023. How does your theory address that? How does it explain it? So at the center of the book is, uh, is the claim that what all of life is doing and including human civilization is trying to use excess energy to cooperate and to outcompete other members of the group, right? This is a pattern that we see all the way from uh, bacteria and cells all the way to businesses and, and societies, right? Um, in the book, I refer to four laws, the law of energy, the law of innovation, the law of cooperation, and the law of, of evolution as, as the lenses with which you can view it. If you think about cooperation, right? In our game theoretic models, we often set things up as a, um, as a dilemma. It's like, should I cooperate or should I defect? In reality, that's not what we face. We face a world in which we can cooperate at the scale of our families or our friends or our regions, maybe our country, maybe our ethnicity, maybe our religion, or maybe humanity, maybe with all of animals. So the question is, what scale is maximally incentivized? And the answer to that question is, it's the scale where my returns per cell, per individual, uh, is higher in a larger group or sorry, is, is higher in the group that I'm in compared to a smaller group or a larger group. So the optimal size of a company, for example, is the size at which um, I have a good chance of capturing that market and succeeding, but the payments per person, the salary or the equity or whatever is higher than if I expanded my uh, my number of employees or or had fewer. So the problem that we face today is that there's a particular metric. So we live in a world that was created by the Industrial Revolution. We found a bunch of stored sunlight in the ground in the form of fossil fuels, turning you know solar energy into chemical energy and compressing it into nature's batteries. And everything takes off after the Industrial Revolution as a result of that. And there's one particular metric called the energy return on investment that I think is, is indicative of what's happening today. If you look at, for example, oil discovery rates, in 1919, one barrel of oil found you another 1,000. By 1950, one barrel of oil found you another 100. And by 2010, one barrel of oil found you another five. So given that our population size have grown, initially this created a massive carrying capacity and then our populations grew. So through thanks to the Haber-Bosch process, we take natural gas and ammonia, we combine them into fertilizer and 4 billion people are alive today thanks to that process. Let me say it another way, right? Whenever the economy slows, and this is typically a function of like, you know, oil prices going crazy or something like that, it incentivizes lower scales of cooperation, it incentivizes the rise of the right wing, and it incentivizes all of the fractures that always existed in a society becoming something more. I use an analogy in the book. Um, imagine like the economic growth rate as like buses coming along, they're coming every five minutes. There are always fractures in a society, right? So people are like, why do the 1% have these special passes that always get them to the front of the line? And why do some group members allow other group members in front of them? But it's mumbling and grumbling because a bus is coming in five minutes. But if that slows down where it's like one an hour, one a day, then all of those fractures that previously existed come apart and become something more. It's easier to be nice when there's more to go around. 
So yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I still maybe it's my problem. I don't entirely understand what you're saying, but let, let's address the resource constraints. Uh, let, yeah. Let's address the environment. So you've suggested that we found this energy in the ground that resulted in the industrial revolution. Uh, and that drove us as a species uh, that defined humanity over the last two or 300 years. That's right. Now we're beginning to realize that there was a cost to that, a profound cost in terms of the future of the planet. How does that play out in your theory of everyone? It seems as if you have some sort of social Darwinianism here where we're all competing somehow and we only do we it are. if we beat others. Are you a social Darwinist? I'm not a social Darwinist, but we are competing with one another. I mean, the two markers of all animals, are certainly for us too, is that humans compete and we cooperate and we cooperate in groups to compete. And this is across the animal kingdom. You don't have to spend a career in academia to realize that, Michael. Isn't that you obvious? do have to spend a career in academia to work out what level of cooperation that we can hope to achieve. Okay, so, so let's um, address the climate issue. Uh, as you suggested, um, energy is both uh, uh, an answer and a problem. How will this play out or how should it play out in your grand theory? So, I mean, as readers will find out in the beginning of my book, uh, the climate issues are what motivates a lot of my research. But for a specific reason, everyone, it seemed to me when I, when I, you know, when I began my career, uh, was focused so much on mitigation, and they still are. Like, how do we maybe slow the economy to save the planet? That's fine, but it seemed very unlikely for the reasons you said. We live in a world where every country is trying to outcompete every other country, every company is trying to outcompete every other company, and every person wants more than their neighbors. And if your if your theory says we're going to change that we're going to we're going to stop that kind of competition from happening you've lost before you've started because you're running against not only nature but this kind of evolutionary logic that the moment one company one country one person decides well you know for me this is enough they get outcompeted pastoralists and agriculturalists outcompete hunter gatherers right so my answer to that is okay well how do we live in a climate changed world how do we handle governance when um, millions of people stream from Bangladesh into India and then Pakistan because Bangladesh is underwater or the South Pacific is underwater. How do we deal? We had to deal with it and we dealt with it quite poorly when uh, droughts result in uh, rural areas, uh, people moving from rural areas to urban areas, as what happened in Syria. This creates a pressure on the infrastructure there. It can't cope. This results in protests. Governments deal this in different ways. And now you have millions of refugees streaming into your country. We're going to see more and more of this. But what what we have are also a, a lens with which to view this, and it's very difficult to convey it. You know, I'm trying to find the the entry point with you, Andrew, because we live. What I argue is we live in a world of alchemy at the moment, and we've just discovered the periodic table. And people ask questions like, "Yes, but what about fire and wind? And this is water. I understand these four elements. Now, what are you saying about I don't understand this atom thing?" Um, well, yeah, but I always think book. when people can't, when they say it's hard to put into words, it's because maybe there isn't an answer. I mean, you you can put your own theory into simple language you did it on your own website when you choose let me rephrase the question I, I, andrew i put it into words in an entire book it can't right. be put into but, words uh, like, but you should also be the answer is resources well but <laughs> let, let me let me rephrase the question slightly you've described humans as a new kind of animal do you think that we have some sort of fatal flaw in the sense but on the one hand, we're, as you've suggested, very competitive, particularly when it comes to energy, both our own and other sources of energy. 
And that has led us to destroy not just our planet, but theoretically ourselves. Is, is it conceivable that we have a fatal flaw in us? What we have is our learning systems are, there's too much of a lag and a delay on our actions when it came to the Industrial Revolution and burning all that carbon and re-releasing it to understand the effects of that on the environment. And so our, we don't have good causal models of the world and we don't operate in that way. We have software that has evolved without our understanding of it. And we have an illusion of explanatory depth that prevents us from seeing the world as it is. So our flaw is not that we're competitive. It, the answer to climate change is a new era of abundance where we have, uh, for example, investment in nuclear technologies that give us the energy capture that allow us to clean up the climate mess, right? Or, or take fusion. You know this imaginary technology well, that we're not to. And, and rather of course, controversial, of and not everyone of would, would agree. What about what but, about? But, sorry, go on. Let me answer the question. I mean, if we have whatever technology you want, if you have the countries that deal with their environments the best and the cleanest environments are the wealthiest ones because they don't have to spend the money clearing forests or using dirty energy in order to feed their populations or you know have enough hospitals. They're the ones that could have enough excess energy to. Sort out the barrier reef. Well, that's not rejuvenate true their in the United States, for example. I'm not sure. Well, it is. It is compared. It, it is. So it depends what you mean, right? So we're using more energy in the United States, but relatively. So if you if you branch it on like the United States versus other Western countries, yeah, it doesn't look so great. But if you look across all countries, right, the United States has pretty clean drinking water, for example, relative to mm. uh, places where you can't drink that water. That's what I'm talking about, right? In order to invest in that, you have to have sufficient wealth. And you have to have sufficient energy, and so once you have abundance, you can you can carbon capture, you can desalinate water, uh, you can live in in deserts the way that you know people do in the Middle East or in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so how it hinges it, so, on this? Yeah. So how would it play out in terms of our attitude towards other species? Um, so okay, we all end up living in domes in in the Persian Gulf, which might benefit us, but the rest of the planet fries and, and all the other species die. It's not... Well, but, but in terms yeah. of your theory, this, I don't know what you want to, whatever it is, it's some sort of Darwinian theory of who we are. What, I think you have what, a misunderstanding what, of Darwin, but yeah, anyway, but, we'll carry on. Uh, yeah, but, uh, Probably, but what? But I'm, I'm speaking of Darwin in a generic sort of popular sense. What, 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 what would it mean to our sense of responsibility to other species i don't think there's anything in specific in evolution that suggests that you know we might care about we, we might very well care about uh, other species as we do we have potential processes for doing that but there's no what i'm saying is a group that decides that they want to look after other species for its own sake and not in service of humanity is and I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, I'm just saying what it is, is not necessarily going to outcompete a group that doesn't have that belief system. I mean, we're seeing um, ho horrible reductions in, uh, you know, uh, biodiversity as a result of climate change. If we had the necessary wealth and energy abundance, we could choose to create environments that also allowed us to live alongside other animals. And maybe as we do, you know, some of the wealthiest countries use that money to preserve species that are going extinct, you know, helping pandas breed, for example, or white rhinos or whatever the case may be. These are societies can choose to do this, but they, they only have that option if they have wealth and energy abundance.
What about, and and then we're going to have to take a break. It's it's a fascinating conversation, Michael, and I apologize for the rather... well, you're coming from all kinds of directions. So, we, we, you know, the book is about a tapestry and, you know, I haven't I haven't even begun to, to explain. Well, that. we anyway, can begin sure. with the book uh, maybe after the break. But let me ask you perhaps the key question here. You have this. We, we, you, you suggest that we're a, a new kind of animal. You've got this theory of everything, who we are, how we got here, where we're going. How do you explain morality in this book and in your theory of who we are? Is yeah, so morality. Uh, is there yes clearly there's morality in the sense that people hold beliefs that we label moral uh is there absolute morality that emerges from evolution i don't think so but there are norms that uh in the book what i say is that there is higher scales of cooperation maybe even all the way up to animals is a secular a secular aspiration that lines up with the teachings of the major world religions we do have theories about how religion itself evolves, you know, why it is that uh, large-scale society tends to go alongside large-scale gods and large-scale supernatural punishers. Before we have formal institutions that do the punishing for us, like judicial systems and constitutions, religion seems to serve that function. And so morality may serve, uh, serve us in learning to cooperate better, holding beliefs that may or may not be true but are useful. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Uh, that line emerges in the book many times because I think it can lead to a kind of runaway uh, morality towards ever greater equality, even if around us in the world, it's pretty clear that humans are not equal, except under the eyes of God or under the eyes of the law or something like that. So you're suggesting then essentially morality is uh, a euphemism for self-interest. No, it's a, it's a, it's, it's okay. Let me, I need to correct something. It sounds like you think that Darwin is all about competition and self-interest and selfish genius. I didn't mention Darwin. I know, but the, the question comes from a place that, that, that is deeply misunderstood. Jeffrey Skilling, Enron, favorite book, The Selfish Gene. And he created an environment that I call an Enron effect or a zero-sum environment because evolution is about cooperation as well as competition. And so morality isn't about, you could say it's self-interest in the sense that when I can align my levels of cooperation where what is good for humanity is also good for me, that's a good thing. But I can also misalign it where what is good for me is no longer in alignment with what is good for society. And the difference is, as I said, can I access something by working together with more people or can I do it all by myself, right? If I could write a paper that would win a Nobel Prize all by myself, I'd do it. But if I'm a physicist, I might need thousands of other people to build a large Hadron Collider to get there. If my company could run all by myself and I get could keep all the equity, I would do it. But I need funders, I need you know investors, mm-hmm. and I need employees to make that happen. What matters, why you, know, you spend a PhD trying to work this stuff out, is about the scale at which is incentivized or could be incentivized. Because what you actually find are multiple stable equilibria. Some of my work is on corruption, right? You might think corruption is a puzzle. Corruption is not a puzzle. Corruption is the human norm. Corruption is what we've dealt with. Favoring your family, inclusive fitness or kin selection. Favoring your friends, direct or indirect reciprocity. When a when a president gives a job to a uh, to his son, that's nepotism, but it's also inclusive fitness undermining our institutions. When a uh, a manager gives a job to a, a friend or a friend or a friend, that's cronyism, but it's also inclusive fitness undermining our meritocracy, for example, right? What matters is what scale and how do we push up? And we have many answers to that. You can undermine lower scales. 
you know, reduce the revolving door. My uh, my collaborator, Joe Henrik, has this argument that uh, the Catholic Church's banning of cousin marriage in Europe laid yeah, the foundation. Joe's been on the show actually a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so th- what, what you have, once you have a periodic table, you can do chemistry and you can do technology. And without that, you're doing alchemy. Once you have Darwinian evolution, you can begin to understand an ecosystem. Without that, you're just measuring squirrels and foxes and water and you don't know what's going on. Okay, so that's the, the claim of the book is we're no longer in that world. We don't have to be. We're speaking with Michael uh, Muthu Krishna, the author of a really interesting new book, ambitious book, A Theory of Everyone. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics for supporting this show. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Michael to talk more theory of everyone. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Michael Muthu Krishna of the London School of Economics and the author of A Theory of Everything. Not everything. I'm, Every, everyone. I'm, I'm, everyone. Everyone. I keep on saying everything. It's everyone. What's the difference, Michael, between a theory of everyone and a theory of everything? Everyone is about uh, the human and social world. Everything is about, well, everything the physical world as well. So I interact with the physical world, but I, I care mostly about humans and our societies and humanity. Well, the, the, the subtitle of the book um, is uh, The New Science of Who We Are, How We Got Here, and Where We're Going. The issue of where we're going is increasingly dominated these days by AI. Uh, Joe Biden issued some new rules on technology today uh, about regulating artificial intelligence. We've done many shows on AI, including with Mustafa Suleiman, uh, another a British-based entrepreneur on the need for regulation. How does AI fit into your theory, uh, Michael? Yeah, in, in the... Um... In the book, I refer to uh, AI as kind of a fourth line of information. So you've got genes, you've got culture, uh, you have individual learning. And now we have a way to look through that latent space of culture, all that we know and all that we've discovered, and find the patterns, the recombinations, things we haven't seen before. So in that sense, you know, AI, we, we used our technology to enhance our muscles. We can now use it to enhance our minds. But there's other ways that, you know, uh, AI interacts with the world. So it allows us to concentrate power into those who control the AI, um, which I think speaks to the need for how do we create a world where every generation um, has as a starting point, a world where opportunities are kind of matched to talent and we're not leaving money on the table by preventing people from achieving all they can in a way that benefits all of us. Uh, There's more things. I mean, I use AI every day. I mean, I think it's going to be a huge boon for for science, for education uh, in in every sphere of life. But these kinds of technologies, I mean, insofar, I think, as AI, AI needs energy, right? And insofar as it helps us crack that next level of abundance, it'll be amazing. But otherwise, it, it operates under this kind of law of innovation. So it allows us to do things more efficiently. 
but it doesn't necessarily expand what I call the space of the possible between that efficiency floor and that uh, that energy ceiling, unless it expands that ceiling. So the ceiling is coming down on us. And one of the reviews of the book in The Guardian, uh, there was a question about whether, do you view people purely in terms of their consumption and, and productivity? And, and, and the, the reviewer suggested that this might be slightly limited. Uh, I mean, you're a <laughs> professor of, of, of <laughs> economics. Yeah uh as well as psychology is that your yeah. analysis are, are we rooted in our consumption no. <laughs> and our productivity when we shrink everything down no we're not we're not and i mean so i found that i found that review a little bit annoying because i mean clearly if, you know they'd read the book and so I, I talk about for example um refugee crises as being very much not an economic question and a humanitarian question that we deal with as best we can but at the same time there is a reality if you have lots of people turning up at your door, you do need to invest in infrastructure to make sure there are spaces in hospitals and schools and, and you know, jobs and so on, everything that people need in order to survive. Um, I think that the reason that I have like an emphasis, I guess, on, on productivity, not so much on consumption, but on productivity is because of the competition that we face in the world. And that is that uh, it's fine if you want, if you have a company that's less productive, but you're going to get outcompeted by a more efficient company, right? You can have your little artisanal uh, uh, company in, in a mall, but Amazon might come and wipe you out because they're more efficient with their supply chains. And same with countries, right? You can, um, you can decide to be a less productive country and you can get away with it for a while, but at some point uh, you're going to lose that global competition to other countries. Hunter-gatherers, right? Uh, people often think about hunter-gatherers as uh, the human ancestral condition because some hunter-gatherers are highly egalitarian. In some of our work, what we argue is that hunter-gatherers are adapted to a zero-sum world where the, there are two equilibria that emerge there. One is uh, we just destroy each other because if your win is predictive of my loss, then I want to harm you, or we find a way to flatten everything. But, but that you, seem to, you, you seem to reduce everything to some sort of, that we all know, always know what we're doing. So you just said you can decide to make your society less competitive, but in the end that catches up to you, which makes sense. But let's, let's, you live in the UK, you teach at the London School of Economics. The Brexit decision, I think, my sense, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is that the British people decided that it, it, it might be in their interest to leave Europe, but actually it probably isn't. How do you explain that when people make the wrong decisions? So, I mean, uh, first off, Brexit, certainly in the short term is bad. Maybe actually in the longer term, had we made uh, better decisions, it could have been, it could have been, or could still be a good thing. We don't make good decisions. In fact, we're terrible at designing institutions, which is, you know, the law of evolution. What we do have is people trying different things and mm. some of those things getting copied and surviving better than others. Brexit is a lesson that might lead to not having a Frexit with France or something like that. A good example of this is something like Silicon Valley, right? Like you might think about the valley as this like bastion of success. No, it's a graveyard of failure, right? It's the the the, the MySpace is the cools, the VTools, and all these companies you've you've long forgotten or never heard of that tried something different in a space where everybody's trying something different and failed. But the Apples, the Amazons, the Alphabets, and all these other companies pay for all of the others, and whatever they do. It can get copied, especially in, in the Valley, because uh, California doesn't enforce non-compete laws, which means if you want something, you can grab the people, right? Like, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an engineer by training, and I remember uh, when Google was offering free food on their campuses, and I was like, well, that's a, that's a waste of taxpayers' money, uh, sorry, of, of their uh, investors' money. 
And uh, it turns out because Google succeeded, other companies started to offer the same thing. Like they were copying one another. Uh, now, if Google hadn't succeeded, that wouldn't that wouldn't have spread. So that's what we see. What what you are seeing is the successes, and you're forgetting all of the uh, the governance systems that weren't liberal democracies or the U.S. Constitution or whatever. You're forgetting all of the companies that tried something that were just miserable. And what we end up is with the, with the successes. Well, but if you use the Silicon Valley example, uh, I don't want to get sucked into this debate, but. I think you're wrong. I mean, the most successful company in the Valley is Apple, and there's no free food at Apple. Google, I know at Google because my wife works for it. They're cutting down on all their freebies because they can't they afford now. it. And Amazon doesn't give much away, and they're not a Silicon Valley company. But let, let's talk about the United States. Yeah. We've had many, many shows on the way in which the United States is undermining itself because of its increasing inequalities and social unrest and lack of trust in government and institutions. How does that fit into your theory of everyone? So the United States, so, I mean, lots of things do spread in the Valley, you know, despite uh, your, your, your counter examples and lots of things spread the United States, you know, Justice Brandeis explained it nicely. He said, you know, each state is like a laboratory, you know, for democracy, trying different things. The reason that we're seeing, the fall, this kind of collapse, the rise of the right wing and authoritarianism in Europe or the fractionalization, I argue, is because we, we, our brains are uh, sensitive to slowed, slowed growth or any kind of zero-sum conditions. And because we're seeing things slowing down where things are more difficult today than they were in the past, it's leading us to, to scale back our, our, our scale of cooperation. We're focusing more on our regions, on our particular political groups, on our similar ethnicities. And so those cracks that have always existed in society are starting to come apart. These are not conscious decisions. Like people are not like, they're not making these active decisions with complete foresight, like the way an economist might see it. You know, it's like full information, uh, full computation. No, we're kind of finding our way in the dark. And sometimes we get it wrong. Like, actually, there's plenty, you know, like uh, the economy is doing better than people think it is. And so then what we face is like a psychological trap because I believe that the world is worse than it really is. I'm behaving in ways that are actually making the world worse than it really is. Uh, and in other cases, it, there's a there is at least some reality to it. So, you know, at least since. Uh, well, where's uh, the role? And, and maybe this is the word that's been missing so far from this conversation, Michael. Where's the role of agency, human agency in all this? Because if you come to these very sort of abstract, structural, but bio, social, whatever you want to describe it, theories. How can we actually, as individuals, change our world? There are, I mean, we as individuals are doing our best to, to change our world in ways that are often better for us, for our groups or whatever. That's where the agency is. But you don't have enough information to be able to make massively, you know, like reliably make good, those good alpha decisions that, you know, that lead to better things for you. So in that world of agency, there is an evolutionary competition where the people who do make it succeed a little bit better than others and get copied. What they do gets copied. And I mean, that's that's the that's the story here. Um, how else do I say this? We live in a world that is too complicated for even the smartest among us to truly understand. And so we feel our way in the dark as a collective to try to figure out how to move forward. And in institutional terms, is it the government that is the, the collective guide in this dark cave that we don't know our way around? Because if we can't find it ourselves, we work together. What's the role of government in all this? Uh, the, the government is, uh, it, it serves many roles, but, you know, 
two important roles in the context of this conversation are that it allows for uh, massively scaled up collective action. So it solves, you know, if I need to build a road, I, I, I could gather all the people that are necessary to put in the money, but instead I pay my taxes and they can make these kinds of centralized decisions. And then they, it can also leverage knowledge um, and, and spread the thing. So it's not the only means by which we figure, you know, Andrew Carnegie, for example, famously had his Carnegie libraries. That was a philanthropic effort. But once he established that these were a good thing, they resulted, we now know, in you know higher rates of innovation in the places that uh, the cities where he founded them, then the government can start to set up public libraries. So it can be a, 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 a massive, massive multiplier, if you like. So the other way that we have agency, you know, I, I suggest in the book, is to actually scale things back a little bit. So giving greater autonomy to cities, you know, like startup cities or charter mm. cities, um, it's a lot easier to create Singapore or Shenzhen or Guangzhou or Hong Kong than it is to try to get it right for an entire country. So if you, and I think, you know, as I said, this is why the United States works so well, because you've got this kind of state rights where everybody can try different counties, can try different things, different states can try different things. Then if you fail, you fail locally. And if you succeed, it bubbles up. You know, you can take that uh, to the federal level. And a mistake we often make is to try to do it at the federal level, convince that you're right, without ever getting to test it at that local level. And this also, you know, adds, I think, to the... It did work, though, for the New Deal, didn't it? I mean, how, how does your theory make sense of the New Deal? <laughs> the, the fact that, you know, in history, we find, like, some successes and some failures is like mutations, right? Like, sometimes you do get something that works out well, and other times you don't. And so you need a theory to be able to explain why it is that we sometimes get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. And that's like the process of innovation. By trying something different, most of the time you will fail, but occasionally you'll succeed and that will get copied and it'll get incrementally improved and refined and, and we learn from it. We aggregate it, we recombine it in other ways. So in terms of, so, so you think that may have been an aberration. Uh, in, 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 in the Bay Area, there's an experiment to rebuild a town from a lot of wealthy people from Silicon Valley are investing in a, in a, in a new town from outside, outside San Francisco, where I live. I, I assume you think that's a good idea to experiment and try something new. I do. And I also think in the same way that most companies fail, uh, most of those towns are, are probably going to fail for a variety of reasons as well. But it, it, what you want is for many of those towns to be attempted and some way to aggregate and learn from those mistakes. So I was in, you know, I was in Estonia recently because I'm trying to understand how this gets us out of the path dependence we see in edu education, in schools, which are kind of the factory model applied mm. to creating factory workers for an industrial economy that doesn't exist anymore. Schools are not well equipped for an information economy, let alone an AI economy. Now, if we look at Estonia, they went from, you know, 1991 post-Soviet occupation, half the country doesn't have a telephone, to the highest uh, ranked students on the PISA, so these are the, you know, the exams that are given to students around the world, in mathematics, in reading, and in science, they are at the top of the Western world, spending less per pupil than the OECD average. So how did they do that is what I wanted to understand. So I went there, learned more about the Tiger Leap Foundation. Again, we see the same pattern. Their schools and municipalities have autonomy 
and there's a sharing and there was a, an incentivization to try different things. So they asked, they created school life where teachers would share best practices. They incentivized teachers to go out, learn from other places, bring those best practices, translate it into the local language and apply it in these schools. Schools heard about what other schools were doing and so they wanted a piece of that. They were the first country in the world to uh, teach algorithms, so reading, writing, arithmetic and algorithms, computer science with robots to uh, elementary school children. Um, and, and they try different things, but again, at a local level, and some of them are going to fail. They tried, so Conrad Wolfram, um, uh, brother Stephen Wolfram, you know, he has this, he has this uh, idea that um, mathematics, the way that it's taught, recapitulates history, and it doesn't have to. Like, why is it that we learn numbers? Fine. And then somehow the Greeks, like Pythagoras, and then eventually you get to algebra and calculus. And as a result, no one in high school learns 20th century or even 21st century math, right? Um so they said, okay, well, why don't we try Conrad's system, which is you can learn calculus and algebra at a, at a at a very young age. You can learn what the principles behind it are, because what's hard about that are are the mechanics, you know, the chain rule, the quadratic rule, you know, those kinds of things. Created for well before computers. You can use computers to learn that. It didn't, for whatever reason, it didn't succeed. Now they're trying something different, again, in some schools where they're swapping homework and schoolwork, where you get educate, you do the education, do the lectures at home from the best educators around the world, around the country. You come to school, no longer are the, the teachers trying to deliver knowledge to 30 kids of different abilities where the top end are ignored and the, the bottom end are left behind. Instead, you're, you're matched to ability level and you do your homework, your practice of what you learned in a school environment. Will it work? I don't know. But that's the kind of vibrancy. That's the kind of implementation of um, the framework, if you like, that, it, that you know, that's in this book um, playing out nicely. It, we cannot, we're not very good at designing efficient institutions, but we do know how to create the conditions for efficient institutions to evolve. Well, finally, you, 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 I know education is, is very important in your theory, but how, how does that, I mean, you use the, the Estonia example, how does that connect with the, the new science of who we are. Um, it seems, again, political. The, the, the Estonians had actually quite decent universities and a school system in the Soviet empire for one reason or other. Then they, then they liberated themselves from that empire and, 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 and focused on their own education. But I, I don't understand the connection between that and perhaps the challenge of education reform and us as a species and what distinguishes us from other life forms. Okay. So Newton is not a dumb guy, but he's trying to turn lead into gold, right? And at the same time, you know, for a long time, we had gunpowder and we could do chemical reactions. But what we didn't realize was that turning lead into gold makes no sense. We can achieve a lot of things before you have a periodic table that are effectively chemistry in a world of alchemy. But once you have a periodic table, you can say, you know that thing where you're trying to turn lead into gold? That's nonsense. You need a star or a large, you know, hadron collider or something to do that, like a super collider. But actually gunpowder, that makes total sense for the following reasons. And, you know, these are chemical reactions that make perfect sense for the following reasons. Once you have a, an understanding that the world is made out of elements. So what you find once you have this kind of overarching theoretical framework for how it is that human behavior operates, how, how societies and businesses and uh, things evolve, you can say, okay, well, now let's go look out into the world and see where are these things that either confirm or falsify this theory? Where are the things that match up with what we would expect? And does it, is, is it working the way we expect? Whereas other places we should see uh, things are not working quite so well, right? You should be able to now identify and separate the sense from the nonsense, the alchemy from the chemistry.
The world then, Michael, in short, if we're to summarize your theory, the world is a big laboratory. Uh, when we can create a world that the world is a laboratory, but some laboratories are more efficient than others. And we can be better at creating environments where good solutions bubble to the top. So what we really want to do is transform our world into the most efficient laboratory possible. Is that right? Uh, in order to tackle some of the problems that we face today, we need to move a little faster uh, against some of the path dependence we find. The countries that figure out and the companies that figure out how to do that more efficiently will outcompete the ones that do not. So yes, to tackle some of these problems, I think we should implement. That's what part two of the book is about. How do we implement this to tackle some of And these I can't problems. resist. I said that it was final. Whenever I say final, it's never final. Um, there seems to be two <laughs> models for doing this, the democratic model and then the, shall we say, the authoritarian one or the technocratic one pioneered by Singapore, which which works better, the the, the Western democ democratic model or the, the, the Singapore technocratic authoritarian one? So I, I would have, so when you're in catch up mode, then uh, authoritarians do a decent job, but they can, because they have the control, like they don't have to worry about convincing everyone. You can go whatever direction you want. Also the wrong direction. You can have the great leap forward that is, you know, to, toward death and destruction. But when you're in catch up mode, that's great. Now, once you hit the forefront of technology and you're no longer borrowing best practices from Britain or America or whatever and recombining it into your local context, now, now the democratic model is a better solution because it creates a vibrancy. You know, there's a quote, ironically, from Lee Kuan Yew, founder of Singapore, where he says, you know, a billion Chinese can't compete with America because America can combine the 7 billion people in the world at the time um, into a vibrant new culture that Han nationalism cannot. But that results in inequality. It results in failure. It results, like whatever you might say about the valley, it results in most of those entrepreneurs should have taken a salary job because most of them failed. But we need people to try different things. And the moment you say something different, if it were obvious what the next good solution was, people would have already done it. If you're trying something different, you're probably going to fail. And that's good because that's the only way we can explore the possibilities. So liberal democracies support that kind of laboratory approach, if you like, let a thousand flowers bloom and let's learn from the best ones. Whereas authoritarians, when they're in catch-up mode, can do quite well. Now, the caveat to that is when you're a small entity like Singapore, or Estonia, or Shenzhen, Guangzhou, whatever, you could you can try different things. But again, it's the same dynamic, right? A lot of those cities, a lot of those, you know, special economic zones did not work, won't work, you know, uh, but we can learn from the ones that do and try to replicate that. It's a complicated answer to you. I, I should also add, by the way, although in the book, I make fun of the what I call, you know, the one thing that explains everything like Toti books. I love the genre. They're fun. But in reality, the world is complicated. Causal arrows go back on each other, flying. What you can't do that. You have multiple interacting pieces. The best that you can come up with is an overarching theoretical framework. It's not one thing. It's not like it's culture, it's energy, it's whatever. All of these pieces come together into a cohesive tapestry that I argue, once you read the book, you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's almost maybe, like obvious. Maybe, Michael, your next book should be called The Theory of Nothing. I don't understand the question. 